I want to start by thanking uh, Pastor David for letting me teach again tonight. And I'm glad that I could be here with you tonight, and thank you for coming. I'm surprised anyone's here at all, actually. Um, nonetheless, tonight we're going to talk about um, two more verses in the Gospel of Matthew, roughly, primarily. And that's going to be in, ch- in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 23 to 25. And uh, last time, I focused on what the core message of Jesus was in his public ministry in the Galilee. Um, that's a particular part of Jesus' ministry. And, and, and tonight I'm going to talk about his core strategy. And the reason why I think it's important for us to be aware of those things and, and can be helpful to us is because um, <clears throat> when we're, we're called, and as Pastor David's even told, to, told us to be, um, to become experts on Jesus. And that can be a daunting task because there's a lot to the Gospels and um, encourage you to read the Gospels regularly. And I know we talked about, David's talked about in the past of reading a Gospel a month. Um, so you kind of, kind of go through that cycle in your life. But even so, even if they become familiar, it might be difficult to kind of put that all together in a way that makes sense. So tonight I'm, gonna tr- I'm trying to, in the last two weeks, this, this first time and out tonight, is to give you sort of a, something you can hang everything else on. So it's sort of like we might say the skeleton that we um, can start to put things on and make sense of them together. So um, if we th- remember last time we talked about in Matthew four seventeen, where Jesus says that um, <clears throat> he, he basically picks up the same message of, of John the Baptist and in the Gospel of Matthew, as well as the other Gospels, Mark and Luke report this as well. And, and that is that the, that he called people to this, to repent and because or for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So we talked about what the word repent means and it doesn't really focus on in at least the, the Greek language that's used, the word that's used there on remorse and feeling sorry so much as it focuses on the need for change. And it really means change because God's rule is come upon is about to come upon us. And so because of that, because God's rule is happening and God and, and He's appearing in that way, that means that we need to reorient the way we look at the world, the way we behave, what our life revolves around, everything about who we are needs to change. And there's a subtle threat that if it doesn't, there'll be there'll be consequences. None of which we want to think about. So tonight, I, I want to build on that, and, and as, as we think about that, I mentioned last time also that, that uh, Jesus, uh, it says in Matthew, he, he made some adjustments too. He began his public ministry in the Galilee once John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, was arrested by Herod Antipas, and he um, went back from where he was in Judea to, to, to start up in, in, in Galilee his ministry. And then he also moved his base of operations from his hometown of Nazareth, where he'd grown up, to a, a town called Capernaum. In Hebrew, means Kefir Nahum, or the village of Nahum. Um, one was in the mountains, sort of isolated. Capernaum is on a main highway along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, which is basically a, a freshwater lake. But it was a border town between the territory of where he was at Herod Antipas, and then uh, a different ruler, Herod, Herod Philip. Um, had different territory. It's right on the border to that. So, so he moved to a border town on a main highway to make his base of operations. So if we turn to Matthew 4, um, 
verses 23 to 25. I'm going to give you my translation, which might be, it's going to be a little different from what version you might have before you, but it's going to be it's pretty much the same, but I'm going to kind of read it the way it actually is in the original. So it goes like this. Uh, speaking of Jesus, and he was going through the whole of the Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all sickness and weakness from disease on the, among the people. And news of him spread into the whole of Syria, and they brought to him all those who were in a bad state, namely those who were being controlled by various kinds of diseases and severe pain, those who were possessed by a demon, and those who were suffering epileptic seizures, and those who were paralyzed. And he healed them. And many crowds followed him from the Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and on the other side of the Jordan. So that's the basic uh, two verses or so that I, 23 to 25, that I want to talk to you about tonight. And um, so to get started about that, <clears throat> first of all, I want you to think about what, um, what the strategy was that Jesus chose. So he, first it says that he went through the whole of Galilee. Or, and, and the word that's used there means that um, he would go to like one place and then maybe change the direction and go to another place, but he was going throughout all of the region of Galilee. And, and Galilee was unique um, in, in that sense from other parts of Israel. If you remember from the Old Testament, then um, <clears throat> during the reign of the, when the Assyrians came in, they came and invaded and overthrew the northern kingdom of Israel under Sennacherib in around 701 BC. And also they um, came and, well, well Jude, the southern kingdom Judea or Judah didn't necessarily fall to them. They did become a vassal or subservient to them. Um, and <clears throat> when that happened, Sennacherib depopulated the Galilee. He basically took everyone out of it and for, uh, for actually for, for several hundred years, it remained basically empty of population. Um, in the far north of the northern part of the Galilee, um, people started settling in there from coming from Tyre and Sidon from Lebanon, um, but they were not Jewish, they were Gentiles. Um, and then it wasn't until the, the period in between the Old and New Testaments when the, the Galilee was resettled by Jews. And so at that time is when Nazareth was founded and Capernaum and Chorazin and the village that Jesus, Jesus visited and, and, and was ministering in. And one of the things that was unique about that is that they built villages, we know from doing archaeological surveys, about uh, roughly a mile or so uh, apart from each other in almost like a grid pattern. Most most communities would develop with a big city and then they would settle up little suburbs that would build little villages that would support the, everything going on in that city. But they didn't do that in the Galilee. They had this big patchwork of villages that were all interconnected. And when they did end up building big cities, they stayed independent of those villages. They didn't, they were different. <clears throat> and so Jesus, growing up in Nazareth, was part of, grew up in that kind of network of villages. And, and as... Um, it says that he was a carpenter, we translated carpenter, but in the original it means literally that he was a general contractor, at least as his father was in construction and in doing and, and building trades, and also that would also in those days mean carpentry work. And that was 
the, the trade that, that Jesus grew up in and most likely performed until he began his public ministry when he was age 30, roughly around there. And so as part of that, growing up in, a, in the village of Nazareth, which wasn't that very big, in order for the family to have work, besides the other things that they did to survive by growing food and so forth, they, they would have had to travel that same network of villages now that Jesus is going to travel on his public ministry, getting jobs and bidding on projects and, and doing work for people, building homes or repairing them or remodeling them. So the first thing we can see is that, that Jesus, is, uh, his strategy is, is to go through the region that he's already familiar with, with people that he may have had contact in a, previously in his life and he had, may have connections with, in order to be able to, to do three things. And his ministry's core has three core things that are about. And, and they're focused on in this, these verses. One is preaching, the other is teaching, and the third is healing. And if we look at the other gospels, like um, Mark or Luke or John, we'll see Jesus doing those very same three things. Preaching, teaching, and healing. Now let's, let's talk about the preaching just real briefly. So preaching is, involves uh, proclaiming and has a, a clear set message. That's probably the, the message we talked about last time about repenting because the kingdom of heaven has come near. And, and so that, that's kind of, he would go and do that. And he also, in, in different contexts, and then he would also teach. Now teaching is a little different because in teaching, we take that, prim, that primary message and we explain it and show how it works itself out in our daily lives. And so if you look in your Bibles, right after these verses, what comes with the Sermon on the Mount? And what is the Sermon on the Mount about? It's about how to live a changed life with, that, that is based upon God's reign over you. And if you look at all the things that happened, basically, in, in his teaching ministry, that's really what, it, what Jesus teaches about. <clears throat> so if we kind of handle, handle on that, then the next thing we can is healing. And um, the healing is much more, in, in a way, um, brings crowds in. It's sort of a crowd feeder in some ways, but it also does an important thing. Peter says in his sermon in Acts 2 that Pastor Dave talked about back this summer, this past summer, in, earlier in the summer, at least we would say, is <clears throat> that it was a, it, it, it confirmed Jesus' claims of who he was. So it spoke to his identity. And I'd like kind of look at this passage, it kind of, it kind of digs into all the different healings that Jesus did. It makes some important distinctions. It talks about how Jesus literally was healing from all kinds, those people who were being um, basically oppressed by sickness and by the weakness that sickness causes, the, the after effects or the, the larger effects that it causes by, by being possessed by a demon, by, by, having ep, by those who are struggling with epilepsy and having epileptic, epileptic seizures, by those who are paralyzed, and he was healing them all. Now, that's an important thing for us to kind of think about a little bit, just a little aside, and that is that beginning in the 19th century when, when, um, when, we call them, they call themselves critics, call them liberals, but um, they decided that there was no such thing as a supernatural based upon 
uh, philosophical movements, and they, because there was nothing, no, no things such as the supernatural, they would say crazy things that like when Jesus was walking on water, that what it was is he kind of, this is kind of the old say, kind of joke about it, but the, that he knew where the, you know, where the rocks were that he could step on. Um, or when, or when someone, when someone, when, he, when he, there was no such thing as demon possession, really, they would say what happened was that people had epilepsy and he was just helping them, uh, healing them or helping them with their epileptic seizures. And that he was using the, sort of the, what they call the hypochondrial effect or the effect that um, people who maybe who think they're sick but really aren't, he was just kind of auto giving auto-suggestion. They give them all these kinds of excuses. But the thing that this text really makes clear is that ancient people understood the difference between epilepsy and demon possession. And that they understood about severe pain and how, it deca- and, and how it cripples people and how people need relief from that. And how they, they knew about uh, how sickness, when, it's, when you've had it for a while, weakens your whole constitution. And they knew how though all those things were present all around them, and Jesus healed people of those things. To demonstrate that he was from God and was God. And that what he was saying, what he was preaching and teaching, had authority and was true. So there's that part of his ministry. The teaching side is... um, Best understood in the context of what it says that we're going to talk about here in a minute that we're going to look at a a few uh, pictures. Um, So it says that he taught and preached in their synagogues. And I don't know if you've any of you have ever been to a Jewish synagogue, but a Jewish synagogue today is different from a synagogue back then in the first century. And in fact, it's probably important for us to think a little bit about what a synagogue was. And so that's what we're going to do for the next few minutes. I have a few still. Um, So to think about that, um, we should know that the synagogue was a fairly new institution in the first century. Uh, when Jesus was around. And, and there's been lots of, of study about this and debate and, and archaeological excavations and, and there's now developing a consensus. So if you, if you uh, sometime have ever heard the story of Ruth in the Bible, or it's only four chapters long, you might want to read it sometime if you haven't read it recently. Um, and it tells a story of, of, of Ruth who, um, who is a widow and who is in desperate conditions, and she's going to have, uh, is, is looking to get married again so that she can, have a, she can have a sort of family, but also have, for her and her mother-in-law, economic security. And so as part of that process, um, a guy named Boaz goes to the city gate, or the village gate, in, in Bethlehem in order to um, purchase a field. And because it was in the, in the biblical period, and according to a biblical law, um, the elders of the community would gather in the city gate, and that's where they would make decisions. But it's also happened that at the city gate, that's where you, um, you made, there were legal, legal things happened. There were legal cases made, whether they're criminal or civil trials. There are business deals made. There are contracts signed. It's also where, there were relig- where you'd have religious worship. It's where you would have 
um, gathering community and, and sort of like give festivals and, and celebrations. And, and all of those things happen in the city gate. But when in um, <clears throat> the fourth century BC, Alexander the Great conquered the land and introduced Hellenism into Israel, that was, this is between the Old and New Testaments. Um, one of the things that happened as part of that is that they started to introduce Hellenistic or Greek institutions into the community and to kind of do away with the old ways. And one of the things that happened is that they got rid of city gates and they got rid of the, the plazas and the, and, the, and the public areas around the city gate that were used for this purpose, and instead they built institutions. So instead of using the city gate as a market, they built a special marketplace, an agora. Instead of a, a court building, they built a basilica, or they built other institutions um, for, for different functions in the community. And so, this, and so the space that had been filled with the city gate got sold off and was built into, and, people's and made into people's houses where land for, for people to have their houses. And so now when you walk into the village, instead of an open area where the community can meet, there, were just crowded, there was just crowded housing. <clears throat> so they developed a particular Jewish institution or, or space to continue the traditions of the Jewish community, whether that be legal and business things or community celebrations or community education or worship on the Sabbath. And that became known as a synagogue. The word synagogue means the gathering place, literally. So <clears throat> what did those synagogues look like that Jesus was going to? What, did that, what does that all look like? So I'm going to show you some few pictures right here. If you go to the next one, we have found a less than 10 first century synagogues or the archaeological remnants of them. I'm just going to quickly run through them. So this one's at Masada. And Masada was a, a, a palace fortress of Herod the Great. And then during the Jewish revolt in 66, um, after Herod was gone, um, rebels took it over and they took a stable have been used for animals, and they converted to a synagogue. And that's this first image right here. Um, go to the next slide. And you can see what the inside looks like. It has benches on the side, sort of in a semi-square or a rectangle, and columns. Go to the next slide. And then this one is another synagogue. This was probably the best one preserved in a place called Gamal in the Golan Heights. You can kind of see the same pattern. It has sort of a central area with a walkway around, and there were columns down the center. And an entrance at the, in the back, go to the next one. This one is looking at through that entrance in Gamelon. You can kind of see what it would, the experience it would have been like going into a building like that. Go to the next. This was another first century synagogue just found in a place called Modi'in, um, near where the modern airport for uh, Tel Aviv is. Um, and, <clears throat> and it has an entranceway, which is sort of the, those sort of the darker stones in the foreground. And then you can see there are kind of the remains of benches and, and some columns in the back. Go to the next. But the, most, the grandest one we found so far is, is, was found in a place called Magdala, where Mary Magdalene was from. Um, dates to the time of Jesus. It is probably likely that Jesus visited this synagogue that you're looking at. Um, and probably the only one that I can for sure tell you that he really did visit because the one in Capernaum dates to the fifth century, not to the first. Um, so in any case, 
you can, this is the entrance looking in, go to the next, and you can kind of see that there are, there's an, benches, remains of benches, and there's a, this little stone table we'll talk about in a minute, and there were columns, go to the, and there's a, on the outside there is a walkway around that has mosaic on it. This is what it would have looked like in Jesus' day from archeological uh, excavations that, that's been drawn. And there was a forward courtyard, which means that they preserved the remnants of that kind of courtyard, like the city gate, and that had an entrance inside where they had, would have worship. Um, and now, <clears throat> during the same time that this is happening, the, the elders that who had, used to be the people who had replaced, who did all the, made all the major legal decisions and did all the teaching of the people, they were being replaced by professionals who had been trained as scribes. <clears throat> so when you read in scripture, it talks about the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, the scribes are these replacements for the traditional city elders or community elders, and their professionals have been trained. And it goes back to Ezra 7.10, where he talks about how he studied scripture and became basically a professional scholar of scripture. And they would be the ones who would be taking over this role of making judicial decisions, performing weddings, um, doing divorces, um, doing the kind of making sure contracts are right and, and witnessing them, doing all the, the business matters as well as being doing the religious teaching and the religious of the day in the community. And they would have done that in that front courtyard area of the synagogue. So that when Jesus comes as a teacher teaching in the synagogues and he's not been professionally trained, he is naturally going to be a threat to them, and they are going to oppose him. And that's why they're always hanging around the synagogue, because that's where they do their, their work. Let's go to the next slide. So in this synagogue, we found um, fresco, remnants of fresco. This is a piece of a fresco, but it shows that it was um, exquisite and expensive. And um, next. And here's another of the mosaic. And then next. So here's this bench and this table is small on the ground and it's made of stone and it's carved and we don't know exactly what it was worked for, used for, but it's in a central location in, in the worship space and we know that they uh, possibly used it for one of two things, there's a big debate about it. One option is that when people would bring their offerings in so that they could be taken to Jerusalem as a tithe, they would place them on that table. Um, another option is um, probably gaining more traction is probably the more popular is today is that they, we believe that when they would bring out the scrolls to read, they would lay them on that bench and the person who was reading would kneel before it and read to the congregation. It's placed in a portion of the synagogue where that activity happened. So if you think about Jesus in, in Luke where he goes to his hometown synagogue and they hand him the scroll from Isaiah, so it would have been placed on a bench like that and Jesus would have been kneeling and then he would have read from the scroll. What I've, can I, a couple more pictures of that, just go real quickly through those real quick. There's a side view of it and then another side view. That's kind of it. Um, the reason why I wanted you to see those things is so that when we read that Jesus goes throughout these synagogues, he's going to a public institution 
That's where the community naturally goes and is organized around. He looks for a place where he knows there will be people who will be receptive to hearing what he has to say. And he teaches and he moves about. There was a sort of a schedule that happened in those days. So they had um, market day was on Tuesdays. They had a little market they would set up in the village. They would have um, the scribes would show up to do legal matters on Tuesdays. And there would be some teaching, especially of children. And um, in, the e- in the afternoon, the evening, that would take place at the synagogue on Tuesdays. Then they would gather again on Thursdays for a similar kind of thing. Um, and then on uh, Friday evening for the synagogue, for the worship service, for the Sabbath, and on Saturday morning. So Jesus would have taken advantage of all of those occasions. In between, he would have been traveling between those villages and going to places where other people might gather. And as it became more and more popular, it was impossible for him to go into such a small room as a synagogue. So we read of him doing the teaching instead out of doors on the shore of the Sea of Galilee or, or in other public places on a hill. And <clears throat> so as you think about this, Jesus had a core strategy and he had uh, a core message. If you jump with me now to Luke, I mean Matthew chapter 9, um, and I'd like to read to you from verse 35 to, to the end of the chapter and into verse 1 of the 10th chapter. And and, I like, and, and as I read this, I want you to think about what we just have been talking about in verses 23 and 25. It goes like this. And Jesus traveled through all the cities, that would be the cities of Galilee, and the region, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing all of their sick and all those weak from disease. In fact, the language is, that almost a, is very similar to the language in verses 23 to 25. And seeing the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were being harassed and thrown down like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. Therefore, beg the Lord of the harvest that he might send out workers into the harvest. And calling to himself his 12 disciples, he gave them authority to cast out unclean spirits and to heal all the sick and all those weak from disease. If you think about what's happening here, we have at the end, sort of the end of Jesus' public time of ministry in the Galilee, and he begins to now focus on, he'll begin to focus on the disciples after this. Um, we, We have him transferring that same responsibility and authority to his disciples, to the, the 12 disciples, who then go on basically their first little mission trip, short-term mission trip, to, to learn how to do the exact same thing and to teach the same things that Jesus has been doing up until this point. And then if we jump ahead and we think about what happens in the book of Acts, is what Pastor David's going to be talking about in, in next month, you'll find that what happens is, is that the apostles, they, do, they continue the same basic strategy. So in Acts 3, it starts off with Peter go, and John going to the temple to pray. And as they enter the, go up the steps into the temple, um, 
they see a man who's paralyzed and they say, silver or gold we don't have, but what we do have, I, I, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And the man wa- stands up, walks for the first time in, je- in a long time. He's able to go in the temple because he's not paralyzed. And he's dancing and worshiping and that allows them to preach. And it says that they, um, later on, if we go jump ahead, and we see that over and over again, we, we jump ahead to the ministry of the Apostle Paul. What happens? He goes with his disciple, with, with his team, and they go on, on the first missionary journey in, in Acts 13. They go, where do they go first? They go to a synagogue. And they teach from Scripture to show how the, the, the gospel of Jesus is true and what it means to be a follower of him. And then we read in chapter 14 of Acts how Paul heals. And also in chapter 28, he heals people. So you see the same basic strategy at work in the life of the apostles and in the spread of the church. It's the same basic thing, the same basic basic message and the same basic strategy. And if you understand that, that'll give you, as I said before, a skeleton upon which to be able to organize and build your understanding of how, of the life of ministry of Jesus and his message and his teaching. I'm out of time. I have less than a minute left, so I thank you for listening to me. I know I run through this. There's much more we could talk about, but I'm grateful that you could be with me. Thank you.